0: Euronisa Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Sympoesis streaming to you from the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. And I'm on the call to artist Robbie Ronlands to talk about his exhibition at Eden and the Willow Gallery in Newtown, as well as about his larger body of work, which exposes the construction of sites and objects and blurs the boundaries between our fabricated world. And the natural world. Robbie, do we have you on the line?
1: Yeah, how you going, Anna? Um, how Good, you going? how are you? Yeah, good. I spent the morning um, in an MRI, nothing bad, just a knee scan. So I oh. feel like I've been in a very interesting space this morning. Very Stanley Kubrick.
0: Oh, <laughs> are you on painkillers as well? As we talk no, to you? no. <laughs> okay.
1: No, it's a. It's an old war wound. I'm finally going to have looked at. I think. All right.
0: Know. And are you at home now, resting, or you're still there? In the...
1: No, I'm, um, No, the front room at home, which is the usual place to make calls and do Zoom meetings.
0: Oh, great. <laughs> and that is in Melbourne, um...
1: Yeah, Yes, in Arm. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And
0: which part of Melbourne are you based in?
1: Um, I'm in Pre- what we call Prestonia, uh, mm. Preston.
0: <laughs> and what's what's the view out of this window that you're making oh. calls from?
1: Oh, very nice. I have a a lovely old sort of waddle, um, very bushy front yard. You can almost pretend you're right in the bushland. And a beehive on the left-hand side, which is, they're just starting to get very busy. So it's a a really lovely view from here.
0: Beautiful. Is this where your studio is as well, at the same house?
1: No, this is my home. And then my studio is a bike ride away up in uh, North Coburg. I've got a tilt slab sort of concrete bunker, which you could see in the images of the work, it's that's in the show. It's a, mm. a lovely kind of, you know, neutral space in a way.
0: Mm. Yeah. And Melbourne is out of lockdown, I assume, as well. Now, is that the case?
1: Uh, the fr- kind of freedom, yes, yeah. yeah. It's um, yeah. Look, I haven't really done anything that has, celebrates that. Uh, you know, I haven't done gone to a pub or anything yet. Mm-hmm. But everything I've done so far is kind of what I. have was doing anyway Mm -hmm. so um but you know that's fine you know look it's a gentle sort of move towards whatever that is that new thing yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. it takes
0: a bit of time to get out again after all these months of being isolated everyone is just slowly re-emerging
1: yeah yeah for sure for sure
0: I invited you to the show to talk about your latest exhibition at Eden and the Willow Gallery, which is based in Sydney, Newtown. And uh, before we delve deeper into that one, I wanted to unpack your practice in general a bit. Your practice is informed by acts of intervention, if that's how I could describe it. And you cut, slice and peel apart interior architecture and material objects to expose the fragility of their construction. So I'm curious how and why did you come up with this idea of slicing parts of architecture and why are you interested in exposing the construction? What is the value of doing that in your view?
1: Um, Yeah, look, a lot of that kind of, you know, early dialogue was created in, uh, you know, probably midway through art school in the 90s. And I'd kind of done a really kind of massive second year of diving in the deep end and part of that was doing a trip through Central Australia, through the Pitinjarra lands, and also straight after that, hightailing it to Brooklyn, New York, for the second half of that second year of art school. And Brooklyn at the time was still kind of in its kind of rougher edge of its what it used to be. It hadn't really been gentrified at that point, but it was mm-hmm. climbing towards it. Um, and so I was kind of really trying to, in a sense, open things up and re-examine who I was and where I was or, or, you know, just a lot of things. I was just trying to find a way in to something that I felt sort of, in a sense, locked out of. You know, I kind of felt like all history, art, whatever, wasn't really presenting a deeper understanding of what I wanted to understand. And maybe language you know, text language wasn't really doing it for me.
2: Mm-hmm. I really
1: needed to use sculptural language to find my way into into things. And so, you know, the cutting or dissecting of objects and, you know, almost extending forms greater than their dimension um, was kind of something I, I sort of fell into and and soon as I started to really find this way of manipulating forms, cutting and manipulating forms into new forms, there was this incredible amount of freedom um, and feeling like I was, I was on some sort of frontier that I was experiencing something that I really needed to understand. I didn't absolutely know what that was, but I really felt like it was, in a sense, ticking boxes for me. Um, mm-hmm. Sorting a few things out, in, in you know, well, in, or just at least opening them up and allowing some dialogue. So, you know, kind of that's where it kind of began. A lot of it was object based, you know, found objects, particularly New York. You know, at the time I was severely m- impoverished with a, a dollar sitting at 50 cents to the dollar, and,
2: mm.
1: and you know, found objects were a necessity because. You know, I could just walk the streets and find them. But I kind of liked the idea of absorbing the landscape into the studio. You know, these finds I really loved bringing back. And I felt like I was having this conversation directly with the landscape and then through that with the people. You know, I, I really felt I was connecting by working with materials specific to the site. And so that became... I suppose so generated the idea of working site specifically or responsively, mm-hmm. and that really was a very potent point in my development where I realised this is this is where I want to activate my practice. I want to be working directly with site. I want to respond to the circumstances, and I want to see how best I can operate with only utilising. The materials that are before me, and and ch- set challenges for myself, dynamic challenges, sculptural challenges, and these, you know, whilst there are outcomes that are sculptural outcomes, they are surrounded by dynamics of the communities that are connected, and lots of things that happen at the same time. That um, so they become like a kind of vehicle into experiencing different landscapes and communities and
2: Mm.
1: you know so it's all it's a massive embodiment of wonder that I sort of fell into and I've I've really loved you know it's like being a 20-year journey now
2: Mm. and
1: it's it's been pretty incredible I've I've managed to explore and be part of an amazing amount of landscapes and communities over that time
0: Mm. And one thing that I'm really responding to in your work, I've seen images of works where you literally peel off a part of interior architecture of uh, usually abandoned buildings. Uh, It looks like they're made of paper when you do that. And you uh, expose the construction of the site. Is there something that you're looking through and for as you expose this construction? Or what are you actually exposing when you do this?
1: Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, certainly that idea of how a space um, protects us, frames us, you know, that sort of action of cutting through a very thin layer, mm-hmm. um, skin-like layer, and then pulling it back and revealing one that, you know, a lot of the time we're surrounded by, you know, 10 mil of material, mm-hmm. feel, what does that mean? Um, they're, they're all questions, it's not statements. And then in that, revealing these inner spaces between, you know, in stud walls, these darker spaces and these cavities and gaps, and then revealing studs that feel like the bones of a space, and then realising there's so much about the body that's happening in that time. Um,
0: Your body you know, or, quite... or the metaphorical body of the building?
1: Yeah, Yeah, metaphorical body. Yeah. Like, I don't necessarily feel... I, f- I suppose I feel like i'm I'm part of a body I'm not necessarily my body when I'm in these spaces you know there's there's been times where I felt like I've you know I've questioned my uh, position in a space and whether or not i I could go that far and whether or not it's too violent you know that's always mm. part of mm. um, the consideration the ethics of working in a space and whose space that is and that's always. Um, A constant kind of question, but um, what I do find is a lot of these spaces, um, sites, they've been deemed, um, you know, a decommission. They're going to be demolished, and and I so I in that time I sort of feel like there is there is there is something that can can happen, and it's only going to be a small window of time, but it's it's sort of. It's, it's let go, the space has let go of its original task or its function, and so it has this capacity to be something else. So mm. I kind of love being part of that moment and and seeing where it could go next and what it can do. And I, I noticed the image that Eden Willow and you've used with the peeling of the plaster.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that, that you know, was a kind of, a, a quite a dynamic shift in, because... Before that, they were quite subtle strips that came out of space and almost like a dynamic line mm. that's exploring the space. Whereas those ones were quite intense um, falls of of space, or you know, like contracting into the space, and and quite quite intense work. And they actually matched. In a way, when I was talking about the surrounding conditions of a the space, they really matched the space because that space was quite a dynamic space. That was a house that had squatters that were living there and mm-hmm. there was a lot of there was a lot of tension in that space. There was a lot of remnant materials that showed that there was distress and there was desperation. There was a sense of quick exit in those spaces. Mm-hmm. So then and, this
0: cut becomes almost as a space falling apart as well, a metaphor yeah. for that as well, yeah.
1: Yeah, like it's its almost like I realized I couldn't do anything subtle
2: mm-hmm.
1: in those spaces. I had to be something dynamic that expressed this larger kind of tension that was going on. They were, you know, quite emotional works. Um, the images um, are separate to being there. You know, maybe don't. they bring across, I'm sure, some of that feeling, but, you know, we're talking a very, very intense space. And, yeah, so the movement of that work and what that's doing is always sort of changing and growing.
0: Mm. It's beautiful what you said, the analogy of the wall being a skin-like layer and discovering how thin the walls actually are or these plasters. Does it make you inhabit the other spaces that you live in, in different ways, this awareness of how Um, how thin that layer of uh, separation, I guess, from the others is.
1: Yeah, look, even here, as I sit looking through, you know, well, it's double glazed windows, but usually they're like a three mil window. and I I find windows really interesting, glass, because they, uh, incredible amount of protection until something hits them and breaks Mm -hmm. them. But they're so thin, and w- wafer thin and transparent like a, maybe a lens of the eye. So there's another kind of analogy there of mm. the eye, the window being like the eyes of the space.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but I kind of like, you know, if you notice, they they react like body, you know, like with the walls that sweat with moisture or grow mould in a corner and glass that steams up, fogs up like your glasses. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, there's... There are wonderful things. And, you know, curtains that breathe, you know, like lungs.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: you know, I, I suppose in the empty spaces, the abandoned spaces I explore, I really do spend a lot of time really just being part of them and experiencing all the subtleties, um, all the all the wonderful changes of light, sometimes miraculous light. Like, you know, in a sense, you, you can't really figure out where the light's coming from and how the light, at times feels like it's communicating with you. It's following you in the space and, you know, really amazing things like that. Like I'm not really scared of spaces. I go into spaces that most people possibly would avoid, but I kind of love that sort of tension. I love that high tension where you really feel like you're hyper aware, like every small gust of wind or air or any movement you're aware of straight away and, and I think that is wonderful for an artist to be that aware, you know, t- to be noticing at that level.
0: Mm. Well, it's kind of a definition of what artist is really, an observer, a great observer of the world, I guess. Yeah. In your current exhibition at Eden and the Willow Gallery in Newtown, Sydney, you're presenting a work that is not so much an intervention into a site as such, but an intervention into a series of objects and associated memories, I suppose. So in some way, it is a much smaller scale of intervention compared to slicing a building. Is this shift from architectural sites to objects a recent development in your practice? Or you were mentioning found objects that you were working with in the past, or is it maybe a return to that smaller scale?
1: Well, you know, absolutely, it's a return. And it was a necessary return, I suppose, as I mentioned, like the New York days of bringing in the landscape into the studio. And that was in part you know of comfort because I was new to that landscape and Brooklyn at the time was still on the edge of you know it was classed as dangerous and so being out there in the wilderness of Brooklyn wasn't really on the card so bringing objects into the studio working was certainly a way to sort of work through the landscape but I did in New York in Brooklyn go outside of my the safer perimeter and eventually work site specifically and Kind of stunned a lot of people because no one none of the students would do something like that, but this work in a way I suppose tracks along similar paths because when we were hit with a pandemic, uh, particularly in Melbourne um our limitation of where and what and how we can operate in the landscape changed so dramatically we mm-hmm. we couldn't move further than five kilometers, and my studio luckily is within that, and so in a sense, I purposely set out and leased a, quite an amazing tilt-slab building and built a space that I knew I would need over the next, you know, over the pandemic period and onwards because I needed to really reactivate my studio practice. You know, studio for me is being quite fluid. You know, a site at any time becomes a studio. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't necessarily need... The traditional idea of a studio, I would use that possibly more for storage and occasionally, mm. if I was doing a commission. But uh, for the pandemic, I really I realised I needed a studio. So I spent kind of a year, you know, half a year really digging in and exploring objects again and and actually retraining myself on how to be in a studio and be active. And once I realised the studio as a site and how I can operate as I do in any other site, things started to really explode in there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the objects the objects started to sort of come in to play again in that way. But it's interesting, Nikki Vanderhurst, who did that amazing essay in the um, catalogue for the show, we were chatting about the writing and she was calling the works, the objects, sites. -hmm. And I, I kind of thought she had, from was leading from the opening paragraph and was just using the word sight when she meant object. But she was then she was quite clear. Now I see your objects as sights, and Mm -hmm. and I absolutely love that because I, I realised like particularly something like the wardrobe. I'd spent a lot of time photographing it and exploring its inner spaces, and I've got these amazing photos where the wardrobe like the drawer underneath when a photo from inside it that makes it look like this cavernous, amazing wooden space with this beautiful light pooling in. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I suppose it's wonderful to think about these objects as sites mm-hmm. um, rather than objects. And then then thinking about um, a site, like a building, as an object, you know, like yeah. you start to realise it's just about scale
0: then. Yeah. yeah, I like thinking about body. We spoke about body. I like thinking about body as a space as well. Yeah, um, in, in yeah. reverse, thinking about space as the body and body as the space.
1: Yes, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I
0: was also wondering or imagining what the physical experience for you is this difference between slicing something as large as a large scale space, large scale building, as opposed to slicing something much smaller. How did you physically experience this shift?
1: Well, there's certainly a difference in how full body a space can be. Um, you know, I think when I'm in a a scalable site I think I love the fact that my whole body is in play that I have to reach to its corners and elevate myself to reach you know past my dimensions you know the smaller objects um, a, a lot more kind of you know bringing it down and and the movement of the body is a lot more restricted but that in itself is kind of quite nice it's you it's almost a little bit more intimate where you're bring it your, your gesture's down and it's not sort of a kind of full explosive moment in a space. You really kind of concentrate and pulled in to this sort of form. Um, but they really do, in, in both situations or in the many different situations, the cut and the, and the mapping out of the cut and the thinking of the cut, is something that is is probably follows the same amount of time and thought and mm-hmm. consideration it's it's something that i sort of map out and i might i might look at like i sometimes i'll just like with the wardrobe i'll tape it up with some electrical tape and have it sit there just with the tape on it and then in the space mm-hmm. for like a couple of weeks i think it possibly sat there for a month Mm-hmm. With this tape on it, and eventually the tape would fall off, and then I go up and re-stick it, and then change slightly where the cut could be, and and then think about it again, and and then it gets to the time where I'm I'm to cut the object, and and that's a quite a dynamic and quick process. It's something that could happen, you know, easily within an hour. Or mm-hmm. for the toolbox, for example. You know, it's probably like half an hour's cut, but all the kind of energy and time that's put into considering what and how that cut's got to be dynamically. And also the re- the amazing reality of when, you, when I've done the cut, it's totally, not totally, but it's significantly different to what I think it was going to be. Because as soon as you open that space up, it just does something totally different and... And you just go, okay, and then you've got to sort of sit and start to experience what that is then.
0: Mm. So it's submitting yourself to the will of the object as well. And I I think I was listening to an interview that you gave on YouTube with, I forgot who interviewed you, and you were speaking about this idea of interaction between you and space, how you affect space, but the space affects you as well. And I think you were quoting or mentioning a book called House of Leaves.
1: Uh, Yes, House of Leaves by Daniel... Uh, Lewinsky or something—a beautiful, amazing book that everyone should read. It—it's it, amazing capacity. I was just thinking about it this morning because it's, it's great you brought that up. Because if you didn't, I would have. Mm. It's kind of one of those books I came across and I lived it for through the whole. Like it's one of those books that it, you almost taps into your psyche and you realise you're living it. And part of the story is about how the narrator actually gets caught up in the story and becomes the story. So, you know, it's quite a wild book. But the way it talks about space and about its dynamic shift, ability to dynamically shift and change and not be sort of static and predictable is so potent. And particularly through the pandemic, you know, I think we've all reinvestigated our idea of space. We've realised that what we take for granted is the space around us is morphing and changing. You know, sometimes our space we're in feels incredibly expansive and fine and other times, possibly due to anxieties, it starts to sort of push in on us. Mm-hmm. And and this book, House of Leaves, without going into the narrative of it, is quite incredible. It's, this you know, the basics of a labyrinth of darkness and experience space through that sort of, those dimensions. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful.
0: Mm. You're on ESA Radio 89.7 FM. This is Arts Monday Symposis. My name is Ira, and I am on the call to artist Robbie Rowlands. And we are talking about his larger body of work, but also an exhibition that is currently on at Eden and the Willow in Newtown, Sydney. It's called There Is No Way Around, Just True. Robbie, another thing that struck me when I went to see the exhibition is how precise and beautiful these cuts are. They seem almost surgical in a way, and the absence that is left in the object is so clean that it seems gentle rather than violent. And I guess this is not so much a question, more my observation, but I'm wondering if this precision in the cut is deliberate.
1: Yeah, look, it's interesting because I... You know, I suppose I've been, you know, because the tools I use to cut are fairly rudimentary, you know, like a angle grinder with a thin cutting blade and a circular saw. And I have, I have adopted for the woodwork stuff a Japanese saw, which is ultra thin. And I don't know, you know, look at times I've questioned my surgical approach, and and I've changed the dynamic of a cut. Particularly in a site to try and get a, a looser, rougher edge, something that has a great attention to it because it it feels very kind of violent, but it always comes off, you know, for anyone who looks at it, ultra sharp and incredibly surgical. So I haven't really found a point where it comes off looking like a really roughly torn bit of paper, sort of thing. Mm, um,
0: you think and- that would look less violent if it was looking more torn? Is that
1: no, mean? I think I think it would look more kind of maybe haphazard and mm-hmm. just of the moment
0: mm-hmm.
1: if it had that been torn away. But but it's obvious with the amount of cuts that I've done that that's not my intention. My full body intention. My intention is something that is quite considered, thoughtful, and precise. You know, and and this work particularly, you'll see. If you look closely at my many cuts before, you'll you'll see a tapered line and, and a sort of dull point. You know, mm-hmm. it never really comes to a point. I usually would just get to a almost to the point and then I would just flatten it. I just couldn't handle the idea of getting to a, a direct point. I don't know why. And it I did it once and I had to repair what I did because I didn't like the point. Mm-hmm. But Interestingly, over the last year, I I went to the point and everything has to be hyper sharp. And I think it's a lot to do with what we're going through. I really felt like it needed to be pointed. It needed to be Mm -hmm. something that was, you know, there was no question. It's it's like there. It's so direct and it's so precise. Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose I was trying to deal with all the uncertainty. I needed something that was certain. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, I, I needed something that was... In some way resolved, if that kind of makes sense. So, yeah, uh, it, it, everything just felt like we were in the midst, always in the midst, and we still are. We're not where we were, and we're not where we're going to be. We're always in this kind of floating, undecided state. And so, I needed something for myself, at least, that went, okay, that's defined, that's to the point, that's, that's what we have here, you know, and yeah, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And each of these what you call sectional cuts, which are displayed on wall as uh, wall sculptures in a way, they're displayed also alongside a photograph of the original object from which the section has been extracted. And these photographs display the absence left in the object and they have this eerie quality, I would say. What is the intention behind pairing this to the object and the document of the extraction? And have you ever considered to maybe just have the sculpture pieces without the photographs?
1: Yeah, look, absolutely. Like, the, it really, it was part of the conversation with Ivan about the show. We had to do a lot of dynamic ch- changes because of the circumstances. You know, one, there was how do I send a sculpture show up to Sydney? um mm-hmm. you know it's always a challenge so it was always about well you know what sort of work can i do that can uh, allow access to the history of my practice but also present something that is tangibly capable of being you know displayed in a, in a fairly modest space in you know with eden and willow and so i wanted i still wanted to present large-scale work but but also that into the gallery. So photos became a kind of a way to do that for sure. So we kind of worked around the idea of the objects and then I started to look at the possibility of the photos supporting the objects and see how that sort of dynamic could work. And yes, certainly there was a moment where I think I was chatting with Marco Fusinato in the studio and he was looking at the objects on the wall, and he's like, "Look, Robbie, you, you don't need the photographs. The objects say everything." And I'm like, "Yeah, I know." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I'm like, "Okay, so where do where am I now with this?" And then I'm like, "Look, I've already, you know, um, sent off all the prints to be done, so we'll just follow this through." And and then so the the kind of place I got to with it, which I really love, is that I like that the objects. In the, the we'll call them sites, as Nikki was saying, in the photographs, are a kind of dreamlike kind of um, moments. They they might they might be kind of made up or imagined. They are just there, but then you turn and you see the sectional cut that comes from that object, and suddenly mm-hmm. you snap back into reality. Mm-hmm. And so, if you stand in the middle of the room, you can look at the object in the, this dreamlike space
2: mm-hmm. and
1: be part of that wonder. But then you can turn and tangibly see this physical form yes. that is the evidence and kind of the factual evidence that mm-hmm. you needed to qualify the fact that the other thing wasn't a dream. And, you know, you can sort of see how I'm leading a little bit into our current state mm-hmm. of mind is we're constantly bombarded with this kind of um, you know vagueness and we need tangibility in it we need something we can grasp and go okay I've tu- I can touch that yeah. and and that makes me feel like it's real now because everything seems sort of invisible and yeah. sort of imagined and mm. so I've, I've come to really love that kind of combination I, I, I absolutely kind of agree with what Marco was thinking and what you also talked about is those sculptural sectional cuts can absolutely exist Mm -hmm. on their own they don't need the photographs and and the photographs can exist on their own too so there's some Mm -hmm. you know there's some movement there but at this present time I do like that kind of point where someone could be in that gallery and, and stand in between these works yeah and 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 be in the moment,
2: you know. Mm,
0: Yeah, yeah. I did respond to what you are talking about. I thought how the photograph engages my eye and maybe more cognitive contemplation. You speak about it being dreamlike, which is true. And then I turn and there is this other object that is totally related to my body because I move around it as I watch this sculpture or observe this sculpture. So this shift between maybe the mind or the dreamlike state and the physical state is quite profound and meaningful, I think in the work. So mm. it, uh, it has a function. And also, another thing that a photograph brings is this sense of loss, mm. which would not maybe be there as much if there was only an object. But when you turn around and you see this image, which is beautifully shot and lit, and you see this absence in this object, yeah, there is yeah. this sense of loss, which photographs tend to have anyway as a medium. Yeah,
1: that's, yeah, that's beautifully um, articulated, that idea of loss. And you know a lot of my work is destroyed after it's created and um, mm-hmm. and the photograph becomes the only kind of evidence document of the moment it existed and you know a lot of people have said to me do you feel loss for for that and, and i kind of i'm kind of happy with it because i've experienced it but i i often think i would like to revisit that moment you know be part of that space again mm-hmm. um You know, I didn't destroy these objects. They're in my studio, so I can revisit them. But you know, I do. Yeah, there's something. There's you know, look. I think the next, where things go next. You know, the the way the sectional cuts are, are detached from this other, this moment, and are there as sort of fragments of the moment, and how that other moment can be kind of represented is, is there's a lot of room there to move, you know. There's a lot of room to actually even maybe even document the action and that becomes the document is mm. the, ac- you know, me in action. I don't, mm. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of liked the, the work sitting there in the photograph is a performance in itself. You can
2: mm-hmm.
1: you can sort of feel how how it with the body in play. You don't need me in the shot to mm-hmm. go, oh, okay, how did you do that? Mm-hmm. um and what my son yanni has said which he he's a great kind of collaborator in a lot of this he's a young filmmaker and, and creative figure and when i first had talked about it, he said i just want to be next to this thing i don't want to see it in a photograph mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and i totally you know he, he was like I, I i don't i don't want to see i just want to be able to Stand in front of that toolbox and just look at it. I want to explore its dimensions and 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 peek inside that cut. And I say, yeah, I'm like, I know, I know what you're saying. And um, yeah, so that's that's kind of interesting. That I mm. think,
0: yeah. However, and again, just coming back to the photograph and that aspect of the exhibition, another thing that's in uh, the effect that it had on me was this imagination of a possibility of reparation, uh, like putting those two back together, completing a puzzle in a way. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it's maybe an invitation into the possibility of that reparation happening as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. They, these are repairable yeah these uh that's kind of had a history I think is uh, particularly my cuts where the form that i pull I pull away is still attached at some point, mm-hmm. and there's always a sense of repair there there's always a sense that you can put it back and everything is what it it was you know um and that that's kind of nice is the eye can repair um mm-hmm. And um, but also the eye can follow my movement of of how I've actually cut and and manipulated something.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There's a lot of access, and I suppose that's the over overall kind of consideration here. It's it's about access. It's about allowing the possibility of people being part of my process and and following my attention and my movement of my body and feel the way I make these works.
2: Mm.
1: You know, access, you know, I suppose is part of that idea of what I feel like at times sort of shut away from things and wanting to find access to things and then having to find my own way in a sense through rather than just trying to skirt around the edges and and realising I can't find a way in. Mm. Um, Yeah.
0: Here on Radio 89.7 FM, I'm talking to artist Robbie Rowlands. This is Art's Monday, Simpoesis, and we are talking about his current exhibition at Eden and the Villow Gallery in Newtown, Sydney. It's called There Is No Way Around, Just True. Why this title, Robbie?
1: Uh, Well, there you go. I kind of touched on that. That was a lovely kind of um, key conversation into it. It is about that idea that, you know, I think... You just get so frustrated with kind of skirting around the edges and going, So, wh- what have we got here? How do I get into this? And then realizing there's only one way in and I just got to go straight down the middle, or you know, and, and you know, I kind of leading into this sort of being there's things about being shut, you know, the gatekeepers we have around us, and realizing that there is only one entry point and they're stopping you from entering. But then you start to realize, like these objects I've cut is, you know, they have designated entry points, but you have the power to choose another way through.
0: Mm. Are and you speaking in metaphors here as well? Are I you am, talking um, about objects only or broadly?
1: Well, well I am t- talking about objects only, but I'm talking in metaphors, you know, is the things are set up in a way that, it suggests that there's only one entry point and you just think oh that's the way I have to go and if I can't get through that way then I just have to give up and and that's partly a lot of how I've run my career I've realized quite quickly after art school that if I followed a certain line that it's going to be the same line everyone else is following and and my ability to To access the things around me in the arts institutions and um, industry is going to be incredibly hard. So I have to find my own path, my own way around and through these things. And so I, you know, and so I sort of developed my own sort of technique on how to do things. I don't know if I've created my own little island here. At times I feel like now the arts institutions are scared shitless of me or something. I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to do something to their place that they won't be able to turn back. But anyway, yeah, so the title came when I was going to, I went and saw a concert with Garth Lyddiard from The Drones and it was the last concert before we went into lockdown for the last, literally the last run we've been in, which has been forever. And I knew when I sat down to listen to him that at some point i will come up with a title and i don't know if it was word for word of what he said but that title came to me halfway through the show and mm-hmm. it was about that idea of just being so frustrated and thinking i'm just gonna have to go straight through the middle here
0: mm-hmm.
1: i really can't stand around any longer
0: yeah and did the title come before you created these works for eden and the Villa? Were they made under the banner of the title?
1: No, I think the title came after. Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah the title came after. Oh, I think I got to a point where I realized I needed something.
0: Yeah. And uh, yeah. these sectional cuts, uh, as you call them, uh, they are of three particular objects in this specific exhibition. Uh, you mentioned a wardrobe, a toolbox, and then there is an industrial locker. Is there a reason why these three objects, or were they just randomly picked?
1: Uh, well i can't say they were random because I you know like things like the industrial locker I specifically set out to go find one so there's kind of these waking moments of like of crazy I needed an industrial locker now so onto Facebook marketplace go find the industrial locker and then back to the studio and i've and I've set myself up and so i you know i was reading, um uh, Jean book my son gave me for my birthday and there was a great quote in there about how they'd like their work to be read like a book and I thought about the idea of my work being read on a song, and and so I sort of see these kind of objects as forming a line in a poem and that might not be as clear in its defining it, specifics of why is there a locker there in my space and why is there a wardrobe and why is there a toolbox. Now, the wardrobe I had f- forever, I ca- I've been carrying that thing around in studios for like way too long. I always had this plan to do something with that wardrobe and for about maybe four years I've been working on this idea of horizontal or cuts, or horizon line-based cuts. And I thought I've got, I have really would love to do a horizon line cut through the wardrobe. Um, so that kind of was really something that's been planned for a while. I really like the idea of this sort of levitating top section with the lower half. And I'd done wardrobes before, and what's incredible, and it's in the writing by Nikki, is that this moment when you cut a wardrobe, the perfumes mm. that come from that wood, you know, just mind-blowing because the wood would have soaked in an incredible amount of, um, you know, odours from clothing and the bodies of many people that own that wardrobe over history, in its history. Mm. And you cut into that wood and that perfume in a industrial warehouse would fill the warehouse and you could smell it for weeks Mm-hmm. and there was one wardrobe I did in a show called with what remains for not fair in this really really decaying space and when i cut and exposed that wardrobe in that space it totally took over the space the smell of it mm-hmm. of that wardrobe and so that was kind of wild i think i love that idea that this this there was another sense Obviously, you, you might get from I mean, whether or not you can smell that odor in, uh, in in the willow, but it's it's a lovely idea that there's this other sense that happens.
0: And and I love um, how this. Uh... When you speak about sense, it's uh, touching upon concept of memory as well, the memory that is stored in the smell. You're speaking about mm. bodies that uh, interacted mm. with this object in the past. And one of the things that I think uh, Nikki van der Host, who wrote the catalog uh, text for the exhibition, writes also is about this uh, inaudible language of objects. And she cites Walter Benjamin here when she suggests that objects communicate the mental being of those who experience them. So, mm. I am interpreting this in uh, terms of objects being filled with memory and meaning and uh, maybe having a certain charge that you cut through, basically, as you uh, make these uh, cuts and peel things off.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Because I was thinking about Doris Salcedo's work and, you know, her objects she works with are in- incredibly loaded. You know, they're drawn from specific situations of loss and you can really, you know, point at that object and say that object. It comes from this specific situation. And so I, I, I kind of like these objects. Are uh, they're just drawn from a landscape, and their ownership, their previous ownership is unknown and vague. But it, you know, it's there. It's in those sort of memories and of the smell and all the markings and the. And sometimes text that's written on the form um, and even the text like the wardrobe of its original maker and all these things are there in its history. And I like that ambiguity of where an object's come from um, because it starts, to, it starts to open it up to be able to communicate with a lot of people and not become specific to one. Mm. Um but a toolbox
0: that you used that is a personal object as far as I understood. It's something that belonged to you and your brother passed by your uh, father.
1: Actually no yeah, actually I sort of thought there was a small part of me that thought may that writing might lead people to think that it actually wasn't Mm -hmm. but it was more of a memory that I I thought of at the time was the toolbox was something symbolically that was a moment in my upbringing where I, I specifically remember my father giving my brother and I a toolbox each and with a hammer and some nails and a few things in it and then and then we're like, okay great and then it was like, well okay well, we'd like to make something and that's where it ended. It was like well mm-hmm. you just guys just go off and do whatever you want I'm gonna go and do what I do and suddenly it was like ah, oh, okay, that sort of special relationship that you thought was going to be activated by this object actually never really continued. It was, whilst my father was an incredible maker, a really amazing maker, he was a master of the miniature, he used to do a lot of miniature railway stuff and um, up to building houses, it was like he was quite an incredible craftsman. But it, he was really, I don't know, I suppose we were possibly a little bit in his way. And and so that toolbox moment really wasn't kind of what it could be. But I like the idea of, the, like, I'm not a very good toolbox person. I, I I don't really utilize toolboxes that well. My tools are kind of spread out everywhere. I don't really like to put them into this thing.
0: So he's um, cutting through it a, a communication of you not wanting to use it?
1: Yeah, look, my, well, yeah, I think I, well, look, I, it was kind of, you know, something like that, the cutting through, as I said, is this opening up of questions is mm-hmm. of like going, okay, if I, if I could just stare at the toolbox and think, well, okay, what does this mean to me? And then get nowhere. But then suddenly I I turn it on its side, which also suddenly uh, on its end, which suddenly changes its dynamics. And then I cut through it and, there is so many questions that come from that and there's so much more dynamic and intrigue in its space and and then in the sectional cut on the wall uh, how the dynamics in that so much more than you'd expect from a toolbox Mm. and so i suppose i'm empowering that idea of just a toolbox as being more than just a toolbox and and it being capable of speaking about a lot of things. Um, I don't know if it necessarily resolves anything but even though I've titled a reparation and and I love how Nikki writes about the two as being you know symbolic or uh, capable of talking about this sort of togetherness, um, I do like that they just open up um, the possibility of thinking about something. And and I followed up, you know. like I realised only today that I was thinking oh, I bought my my daughters each toolboxes with tools and enough to be able to be active. And when they need something, they can they've they've got that toolbox so that if they need to measure a wall or a bit of furniture. There's a tape measure in there or put a nail in the wall. There's a a hammer and nail. But I was thinking. Even though I'm quite active with them, I have to really make sure if they want to make something, I'm there for them, you know. Mm. Yeah.
0: Robbie, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us on ISAD Radio 89.7 FM this morning. It's
1: been amazing and it's so good to bridge the gap between Sydney and Melbourne.
0: The exhibition space is called Eden and the Willow and it's based on 16 King Street in Newtown, Sydney. The exhibition is called There is No Way Around, Just Through. And I was in conversation with Robbie Rowlands. This is East Radio 89.7 FM.